This week on the Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature. Climate's impacting us now, here, and our children more, and climate solutions are good for our health. And it's not a question of having the solutions available, it's a question of implementing them. It's climate health, your health. Prevention is protection on the Bioneers. Support for the Bioneers' Revolution from the Heart of Nature is provided in part by Organic Valley Family of Farms, funding also provided by a grant from the Park Foundation, and by the generous support of listeners like you. In 2009, the prestigious British medical journal The Lancet appointed a commission to study the relationship between climate change and public health. The sober conclusion was this. The health impact of climate change is potentially catastrophic for human survival. It undermines the last half century of gains in global health. It's a medical emergency. In this light, making necessary healthcare advances in the 21st century will be as much about looking back as looking forward. The great health improvements of the 19th century had little to do with medical care and everything to do with public health measures. Diseases were dramatically controlled by a variety of environmental and societal approaches, such as maintaining clean water supplies and quarantining the sick. In this disrupted 21st century world, human beings have radically altered the terrain of nature itself. Now, climate disruption is stressing both natural and human systems to their breaking points and past them, which means we're all involuntary subjects in a mass medical experiment. Our success or failure as a civilization may well hinge on how ingenious, nimble, and socially just our public health systems can become. Today, visionary healthcare innovators are developing what can be called ecological medicine. They're showing how public health means first protecting nature, the ecosystem health underlying all health. Prevention, not treatment, is the first line of action. They're demonstrating how healing the climate is good for our health, very good. And it's also very good for healthcare economics when you make the right choices. Now the healthcare sector is stepping up boldly as a first responder and showing some very wise win-win choices. This is Climate Health, Your Health. Prevention is Protection with visionary healthcare innovators Dr. Linda Rudolph of the Public Health Institute and Dr. Barbara Sattler of the Alliance of Nurses for Healthy Environments. My name is Neil Harvey. I'll be your host. Welcome to the Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature. A lot of people think of climate change as being an environmental issue. Actually, it's about us. Dr. Linda Rudolph links the hallmarks of climate disruption, such as rising sea levels, radically changing ecosystems and weather extremes, to severe threats to public health, food insecurity, air pollution, increased pollen and particulate matter from fires and droughts, toxified water, no water, the proliferation of weeds and insects, and new diseases and migrating disease patterns. 
At the same time, she says, a growing awareness of these harms is opening the door to solving for pattern with solutions that have multiple benefits. While we reduce greenhouse gas emissions and build climate-resilient communities, we can also improve public health and social equity, a big contributor to health. Dr. Rudolph leads the Center for Climate Change and Health at the Public Health Institute. She was recognized by the Obama White House in 2013 as a champion of change for her efforts to protect public health in a changing climate. She spoke with us at a Bioneers conference. A lot of what public health really tries to do is to assure that people have conditions to live in that are healthy. We know that only a small proportion of our overall health can be attributed to medical care, that what really makes the difference is the physical, social, economic, and services environments in which we live. So a lot of what public health focuses on is how can we create healthier environments. That means creating environments where people have access to healthy forms of transportation, safe routes to school, access to healthy and affordable foods, the ability to choose clean energy, the ability to have safe drinking water that isn't contaminated by nitrate runoff from over-application of nitrogen fertilizer. So really, the role of public health is to help people understand what's going on in terms of how these environmental degradations and climate change and economic and social conditions are driving poor health and health inequities, and then work across many agencies to change what those living conditions are that create poor health outcomes. When the Lancet Medical Journal identified the environmental health impact of climate disruption as a medical emergency, it harkened back to the public health debates of the 19th century. At the time, a fundamental conflict of medical opinion was raging between Louis Pasteur and his scientific rival, Antoine Béchamp. Pasteur identified pathogenic germs as the cause of disease, the famous germ theory that has been the default medical model ever since. To the contrary, Béchamp contended that the terrain is everything. He proposed that a healthy terrain defeats pathogens or holds them in check. In other words, in biology as in ecology, the medium is the message. Sustaining the body's internal terrain as well as ecosystem well-being is at the heart of health. Dr. Linda Rudolph says the Lancet's clarion call invoked the well-being of nature and our surroundings as the cornerstone of health. And they basically said that much of our increase in health globally has really come at the expense of our ecosystems and that we need to be thinking about whether or not We will be able to sustain human life on Earth if we collapse the ecosystems on which we depend. You know, we have to have clean water to drink. We have to have clean air to breathe. We have to have a planet that's capable of producing enough food for us to eat. We have to start thinking about all the different ways in which we can create healthy communities on a healthy planet. 
Dr. Linda Rudolph sees a historic opportunity to improve global health because the same human systems causing climate change are contributing to poor health and health inequalities. Solving for pattern. We know that if we switch to safe, renewable, and clean energy and we increase energy efficiency and we reduce our use of fossil fuels as a way of generating energy, we will significantly reduce greenhouse gas emissions, air pollution, and poverty that keeps people from spending their dollars on healthy foods and other health resources. And that would reduce asthma, respiratory disease, cardiovascular disease, and some adverse birth outcomes. We know that if we eat less meat and eat sustainably produced food and reduce food waste, we would decrease methane emissions and nitrogen emissions, reduce our use of toxic pesticides and herbicides, reduce drinking water contamination with nitrates, prevent soil erosion, reduce food miles, and reduce our currently unsustainable consumption of water resources. We'd also increase access to affordable, healthy foods and strengthen rural communities and sequester more carbon in the soil and reduce obesity and cancer, type 2 diabetes, antibiotic resistance, and pesticide illness. So there's a lot we can do. Dr. Rudolph observed that there's also a climate gap, severe inequities in the ways communities experience harm from climate change. As usual, low-income communities, communities of color, the young and the elderly are far more likely to suffer and even die during extreme heat waves, among many heightened vulnerabilities. If you live in a neighborhood that is an urban heat island where too much pavement and not enough green space and trees makes the temperature 12 to 17 degrees warmer than surrounding areas, you're at more risk of heat. If you work in the fields or if you're a construction worker or if you work in a warehouse that's not air-conditioned, you're at more risk of heat. If you live near a freeway, rising ozone levels exacerbate your existing risks due to air pollution. Low-income people don't have home insurance, so when there's an extreme weather event and they lose their house, they don't have the capacity to rebuild. Low-income people are more susceptible to the increases in food prices and thus to more food insecurity. And we know that food insecurity is associated with rising risks for diabetes, heart disease, and hypertension. We really can't separate out either the causes of poor health, the causes of climate change, and the causes of these really stark and morally unacceptable health inequities. So we're talking about global injustice because Many of the poorest, most vulnerable countries haven't put out the greenhouse gas emissions that we have. We're talking about local climate injustice. And of course, we're talking about intergenerational climate injustice. We have a responsibility to safeguard the planet if we want to safeguard human health. Prevention is protection, and that means preventing the worst climate change. Certainly, says Dr. Rudolph, the individual choices we make to improve our health can have a collective impact on reducing greenhouse gases. But decades of public health experience show that it's societal systems that largely determine what choices we really have. People need systems and opportunities to 
make healthy choices or climate-friendly choices. So we really need to change the systems that are driving climate change and health outcomes. How do we create building standards that require cool roofs so that we don't have urban heat islands that make people that live in generally low-income neighborhoods and cities at higher risk from heat illness? How do we build tree canopy in areas and cities that have too much pavement and not enough green space? And how do we build community gardens in those communities, which both provide access to healthy foods and create some heat resilience? So we really need to start changing our zoning regulations and our land use and transportation policies. If we use low-carbon fuels, increase auto efficiency, but most importantly, if we shift from driving around in our cars to walking, biking, and using public transit, we get these air pollution reductions, but we also get all of the increases in physical activity. And that would yield just incredible reductions in heart disease, in diabetes, in osteoporosis, in depression, in dementia. So a lot of public health efforts now are really to really work across sectors so that people understand how all of these different decisions that we make in so many different aspects of our society have big impacts on our health. Dr. Rudolph says that many public health initiatives are working across sectors and devising new policies that will dramatically improve public health. The patient is society, not the individual. The healthcare sector represents a whopping 16 plus percent of the U.S. GDP. Dr. Barbara Sattler saw a golden opportunity to make change by redirecting hospital purchases and practices. Dr. Sattler is a professor of public health at the University of San Francisco and a founding member of the Alliance of Nurses for Healthy Environments. This international organization educates nurses and other health professionals on how to green hospitals. Dr. Barbara Sattler spoke at a Bioneers conference. We are looking at how we're making purchases. So we want to look at the whole life cycle of that item and also then the toxicity of the actual product that we were using as the end product. And then what do we finally have to do with that to properly dispose of it? I want to just talk about one of my heroes who was one of my students, and I was giving a lecture about heavy metal toxicity. And the next day she went to work in the telemetry unit. That's a unit where they're monitoring 24-7 patients who have heart arrhythmias, but the patients are allowed to walk around. So they have them on these 24-hour monitors, and they've got batteries. And so whenever they would put a new monitor on, they put a new battery in, because you don't want the battery to go off while the patient's wearing it, right? And so she used to, like everybody else in that 650-bed hospital, took those small batteries and threw them in the trash, which is true of many, many hospitals still in the United States, regrettably. So she had that battery in her hand, and she knew it had lithium in it, and she could not throw it away. I mean, it just wouldn't leave her hand. And so what she did was she figured out on her unit how she could recycle small batteries. So she got in touch with a recycling company, and they brought these bins in. And in the telemetry unit, she created this whole thing within two weeks. And she came back sort of wagging her tail to class and said, you know, this is what I did. And I said, Denise, that was fabulous. 
How many small batteries does the University of Maryland Medical Center purchase a year? 97,000. And so she then just went back to that same battery recycling company and said, okay, let's do this. Let's just do it for the whole hospital. She talked to the people in the administration that were responsible for this. And honestly, probably within six months, every unit had a place where you would go and get your new batteries, and right next door to it was a bin where you would dispose of your old ones. 97,000 batteries now are in a closed loop, not getting out there into the waste stream. Dr. Sattler's star student went on to audit other big hospital waste streams and to significantly reduce them. She became the hospital's first chief sustainability officer, a model that's now spreading rapidly along with these kinds of successful practices. For instance, U.S. hospitals use a hefty 8% of the nation's energy, another win-win opportunity with a big upside. There's a health system in Western Maryland that said, okay, we're going to build a wind farm. We're going to take several of the hospital systems in the area and we're going to actually capitalize a wind farm. And then we're going to be able to use the energy from that. We use a lot, and not in every single room, but in many hospital rooms, because you have to be really sick to be in a hospital now. And so uh, there's a lot of electronic equipment there. In Europe, in many of the hospitals, they have these little key cards that go at the entrance, and you put a little key card in, and all of the electricity goes on in the room. But if you no longer have a patient in that room, you pull the key card out, everything goes off. Whereas in the U.S., a lot of the electronic equipment is going to just stay on 24-7, even if you don't have a patient in there. So there are these innovations that we can be adopting from other places. But sometimes you absolutely don't want the electricity going off, like during superstorms whose intensity and frequency are escalating on a climate-changing planet. So what we discovered both in Katrina but then also again in Sandy is that very often the power plant of the hospitals was in the basement. And so when Sandy happened and the basements were all flooded, you wound up with hospitals that had no capacity to function. And what a lot of hospitals, especially coastal hospitals, or if you're in a a watershed basin, they're doing some redesigning and putting the power or the batteries or whatever in an area that's up a few levels so that they're not going to be underwater. And also, uh, some of the newer hospitals are developing their emergency rooms entrance onto the second story so that should there be flooding, you could actually come in with a boat. You know, we hate to have to think about it in these terms, but we now know we have to think about it in these terms. Innovators in the healthcare sector are finding comprehensive solutions. Several hospital systems now have transportation fleets that are electric or run on alternative fuels. They're encouraging workers to use public transportation, either paying for it directly or designating free or convenient parking spaces to workers who carpool. So-called green teams are finding ways to replace toxic substances on hospital grounds. And of course, we all know about the dreaded hospital food. We worked a lot and continue to work a lot on food in hospitals, food in healthcare, connecting local farmers to hospitals in order to get them, not just get them introduced, but help the hospitals be able to tell the farmers how do they want the fruits and vegetables and meats and poultry? In what form do they want them? 
there needs to be assurances because hospitals need to be able to get that much food onto the table any given day. So really working with local farmers to help them understand what the needs are and how to get them to the hospital in a way, in a format that would work. Getting uh, dairy that is where cows are not given recombinant bovine growth hormone. We had a big event in Maryland where we had hospital food purchasers and farmers and the farmers all had booths and the hospital food purchasers got to go around table to table to find out what was available in what seasons and at how much to make those connections. We got 12 of the hospitals in Baltimore to sponsor farmers markets, thereby bringing fresh fruits and vegetables to an otherwise food desert area, which made a huge difference. In some instances where there was literally not enough room because there were urban settings, we brought farm stands sometimes into the hospitals. And when there was enough land, developed community gardens. One of the way that things get played out in hospitals is through green teams. Green teams are these sort of voluntary groups of folks. They're activists within the hospitals who are doctors and nurses and facilities managers and infectious disease people and all kinds of folks who come together around their interest in sustainability, around their concern about climate change and our carbon footprint. These kinds of innovations have saved hospitals millions of dollars while improving public health and the environment, a triple bottom line. And there's another motivation that's gotten hospital administration's attention. They started receiving awards and getting local newspaper articles or local news on television. Now, a lot of times hospitals get bad press, so they are simply delighted when they get good press. And so we started to make them look good, and now we've begun also to see sustainability officers in hospitals. That is their job, to decrease the carbon footprint of the hospital and decrease toxicity, et cetera. And so what else are we going to do? We want our hospitals to be completely regenerative. We'd like them to be no waste. We want them to be carbon neutral. And we want constant energy, water, product audits that are constantly kind of revising what the goal is and how we're going to get there, that we source 100% renewable, and that we have a policy in place that is for environmentally preferable purchasing. This new emerging healthcare system will run on new policies. Several states are now leading with holistic solutions that get to the root causes of climate disruption, including inequality. Dr. Linda Rudolph. I feel like we are at a tipping point, a climate change awareness tipping point, where we're going to start seeing more and more mobilization around this issue. And it's really important that we keep reminding people that it's not just about the people in Bangladesh. Bangladesh is super important. Millions of people there are going to be displaced by sea level rise. But a lot of people in Louisiana and Florida are also going to be displaced by sea level rise. It's not just about polar bears. It's about increases in the asthma rates in your children and increases in food prices because of changes in crop yields related to drought and extreme heat. So I think our main task is really to help people understand that climate's impacting us now, here, and our children more, and that climate solutions are good for our health and that we really can benefit everybody by implementing these available technologies and shifting our agricultural practices. We know how to do that, and it will be a win-win.
So many of the things that we need to fix, if we fix them right, will be addressing climate change. And it's really an opportunity for us to build a better society in many ways, build community, and create equity. Dr. Barbara Sattler and Dr. Linda Rudolph. By healing Earth's ecosystems, we heal ourselves while bringing about an equitable society. Because the terrain is everything. Climate health, your health. Prevention is protection. You can see and hear more from Linda Rudolph and Barbara Sattler and explore more Bioneers radio programs, podcasts, and videos online at Bioneers.org. For information on attending the National Bioneers Conference and Bioneers events in your area, please visit Bioneers.org or call 1-877-BIONEER. The Bioneers Revolution from the Heart of Nature is a production of Bioneers and Collective Heritage Institute. Executive producer, Kenny Osabel. Written by Kenny Osabel. Senior producer and station relations, Stephanie Welch. Host and consulting producer, Neil Harvey. Program engineer, Emily Harris. Production assistants, Jeff Westman, Tina Rubio, and Melanie Choi. Interview recording engineer, Emily Harris. Our theme music is co-written by the Baca Forest People of Cameroon and Baca Beyond from the album East to West. All royalties from Baca compositions and performances go to the Baca Forest People through the charity Global Music Exchange. Find out more at globalmusicexchange.org. Additional music was made available by Sounds True at soundstrue.com. For more music information, please visit bioneers.org. The opinions expressed in the Bioneers Revolution from the Heart of Nature are those of the presenters and are not necessarily those of Bioneers and Collective Heritage Institute, the underwriters, or this radio station. My name is Neil Harvey. Thank you for listening. I invite you to join the Bioneers in inspiring a shift to live on Earth in ways that honor the web of life, each other, and future generations. This is program number 0516. This program was made possible in part by Organic Valley's pasture-raised organic dairy products, bringing the good from our family farmers to your table at organicvalley.coop. Funding also provided by a grant from the Park Foundation, dedicated to heightening public awareness of critical issues, and by the generous support of listeners like you. If you love Bioneers Radio, it's free and easy to support us. Just take a moment to post a review on our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you find our show online. You'll be helping other people find and enjoy these incredible thinkers and storytellers. And thank you for helping us out.